Okay. I'm gonna run through some stuff. Are you guys ready? We are gonna like pound through a couple things and then we're gonna pray for some people, okay? This is what I wanna pound through. I wanna pound through, um, I'm gonna show you some PowerPoint with it because God knows that I need visuals in order to stay focused. So I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt that you need it too. And I wanna start with this simple reality. When Jesus died on the cross, he gave you access to the entire kingdom. You lack nothing today. In this place, you lack nothing. It says that he gave you every spiritual blessing. He gave you everything you will ever need to accomplish anything he ever asked you to do. If you are waiting for more money to accomplish what God has asked you to do, you clearly didn't hear the voice of the Lord. <laughs> because he never gives you a dream that's too big to start today. See, but most of us don't know how to invest $10, so we're still waiting for $10 million. God says, no, learning how to invest $10 is how you end up with the $10 million. Not just about money. This is about the kingdom. This is about learning to use the fishes and loaves that are in your hand, being grateful for what you have. Because when you're grateful for what you have, you always get multiplication. When Jesus gets the fishes and loaves from the little boy, what does he say? We got to declare a fast 40 days to make this multiply. God, multiply it, multiply it, multiply it. Is that what he did? What did he do? He broke it. Some of you are like, my stuff's broken. And God goes, perfect, now thank me. No, I'm being serious. He broke your thing so that you would learn to be grateful for what he gave you, not for how good you are at taking care of it. He breaks it, lifts it over his head and says, thank you. That's all he says. He's grateful for what he has. You still have the same access to the entire kingdom today. You have it all. You have access to everything. But here's the problem. About 300 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, we began to give up certain rights and we began to give up certain things. Even though he paid for us to have it all, we liked not dying, so we gave up some rights in order to not die. Uh, that's a fair trade. I think for most of us, we're like, yeah, I like not dying. That's good. Okay? But in the midst of that, we gave up a whole lot of stuff that had to be won back. Winning back, I don't have time to go into the history of the church and Rome and all these things. I don't have time for all that. But what I do have time to tell you is it took us about 1,700 years. It took us between then and now, we're talking about over 1,700 years. And he still hasn't finished giving it all back to us because we still don't know what we need. So when we get something back that we gave up, this is what we call it in history. It's called a reformation. When we gave up certain things at about 300 AD, we needed a reformation that began with one simple thing. We needed to get the word of God back to the people of God. Can we go to the first slide? Does somebody, I can't see anything. Thank you, you guys are, yeah, here we go. Are you all ready for this? Our first reformation was a reformation of the word because we had lost the word of God. The Jews carried it around, the Jews had it in their hearts, they memorized it, but Christians did not do the same thing. And all of a sudden, we were a people without the word of God in our own language to read for ourselves. So we allowed another man to read it in a language we didn't understand, then tell us what it means so that we didn't have any responsibility ourselves to live it out. See, I've said this before here, but it's not your pastor's job to teach you. You're like, no, Jake, no, the Bible says... <laughs> Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. And I've, I've shared this before here, but when Peter heard Jesus say, feed my sheep, he did not reach down in the grass, shove the grass in the sheep's mouth, help him chew, rub his throat until he swallowed, rub his belly until it came out on the other side. That's not a good shepherd. That's a terrible shepherd. A good shepherd creates the environment for people to eat and die if they don't want to. But a sick sheep is not the sign of a sick shepherd. It's the sign of a sick sheep. If you're still worried about your pastor not feeding you, you should go home and read the Bible for yourself. That's why we're raising, we're raising up leeches instead of lambs and wonder why all our pastors are dying. Because we're sucking them dry and they're dying in front of us and we're like, be stronger. Let's have a prayer meeting for our pastor. How about you just go home and read your Bible? Let's just, I know we should bless them and pray for them, but how about we stop waiting to have a meeting with them for three months when we could go have a meeting with the King of Kings? 
You have access to the living God, but the problem is because most of us aren't spending time in the word, we don't know the access we have because what we won back in the Reformation, most of us don't even take advantage of. We probably have six Bibles at home and barely open one. You got four versions on your laptop, your iPad, your iPhone, your i-everything. We got versions upon versions upon versions, and we don't spend time soaking in it, reading it, meditating on it, because we want somebody else to do it for us. But the Word was the very first reformation we had. I, we can go back in history. We don't have tons of time. John Wycliffe was the one who started it. That dude broke down. He had a group called the Lullards. He translated the parts of the New Testament, wrote them by hand, set them with some followers called Lullards, and they would go door to door knocking and helping people read the Word for the very first time in their own language. This made the church so mad that 40 years after he was dead, they dug up his bones, burned them to ash, and threw them in the river. It's amazing how much Reformation looks like rebellion until a couple generations later. It's okay. You'll get that in a month. It's okay. So listen. So then some of his teachings get to a man named Jan Hus in a city called Prague. You guys, this is the 500th year anniversary. This year is the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Tell me God isn't going to do something. Tell me it isn't time. It is very much time. Jan Hus begins to preach this word. He begins to preach this word that the selling of indulgences were a fraud. For those of you guys that don't know what indulgences are, it essentially meant that you could pay to have your sins removed or your body be healed. That's what the church was doing. Because it was a time of the Black Plague. There was tons of sickness going around. And the church needed money because so much of it was being taken from them. They began to sell what they called indulgences. Now, Martin, now Jan Hus was preaching against this, and it got him burned at the stake. But there was actually no movement. The crazy part is there was really no movement. He was just preaching it, but nothing much was happening. And it says in the history books that one day three young artists went to three different churches, and they stood up, and they sang this song. Priest, thou liest. Your indulgences are a fraud. I have two questions for you. Number one, wouldn't that be weird if someone stood up in the middle of your service and rebuked you? Number two, they didn't just scream it. Sang it. Why? Did they sing it instead of say it? Because even if they didn't believe it, three hours later that melody would still be lodged right here. And they'd be humming it after they heard it so that it would go past their brain. That's why it's really, I just declare this, this, this is going to be a season where the songs match the sermons. And you're going to start to write the songs of the house. Not just songs that are worship songs. It is time. Bill, Bill, uh, Bill Johnson says it this way. He says, I want our church to sing the songs that we want where, about where we want the church to be in five years. That's why they write so many songs, you guys. Because they're writing about where they want the church to be in five years. It's a declaration. Jan Hus is burning at the stake, and he declares this. He says, in 100 years, a reformation will start that cannot be ended. And almost 100 years to the day, Martin Luther, if you could put up the next slide, Martin Luther nails the 95 theses to the doors at Wittenberg. Martin Luther nails those to the doors at Wittenberg and begins to give us a picture of what it looks like for us to have the word of God in our own hands. You guys, I sat, number one, I went to, uh, I went to Wittenberg, which was awesome, and I also went to Eisenach where Martin Luther went and translated the New Testament. I got to go into the room at a building, at a castle called Eisenach, and there's still a little slab of, of, of stone and a tiny little hole where there's a fireplace where by firelight he sat and he wrote out the New Testament. And he wrote out the New Testament for the first time a generation can get the word of God back in their own hands and read it for themselves because this man existed. I'll say it this way too. That man was hiding in a place called Eisenach under another leadership so that the government couldn't get him. Why? Because every reformer needs a refuge. And we need to create refuges for reformers because reformers are weirdos. <laughs> They're weirdos, but we've got to let them in. We need them. We need the weirdos. <laughs> and we need to make a place for them. Now, that was the first reformation. We had a second reformation, and it was a reformation of power. 
Go ahead and put the next slide up, just this next one right here. That right there. In Azusa Street in 1906, we saw the Second Reformation. The Second Re Reformation was a moment where the power of God was returned to the people of God. But the Word of God, the Reformation of the Word, was a setup so that we could have the Reformation of power. Because where did they find out that they could actually walk in power? In the Word. They literally soaked in the Word, and we're like, hey, man, I think I can do some of this stuff. They're like, why don't we try it? That's kind of crazy. Let's go ahead and try it. I think maybe we can heal the sick. What if we prophesy? What if we evangelize? What if we preach the gospel? What if we just lay hands on people? You think they'll get better? I think they'll get better. I think we should try stuff. What if that weird feeling you're feeling isn't just that weird feeling, but it's actually discernment? What if it's a gift of discernment? What if you walk into a room and you feel something and it's not yours? You didn't feel that way when you walked in, but when you walked in, you felt it. Oh, that's a gift of discernment. If, you, if, you're, if you're fine and happy and you get walk into a room and get depressed, guess what? It isn't you. That's discernment 101. You can thank me for that later. We'll do a whole class, okay? But here's the point. It's so beautiful. Some of you are getting words of knowledge. Some of you are getting prophetic words in the midst of worship, but you don't know what to do with them. Begin to write them down. Begin to steward them. Begin to bring them to leadership. Begin to go, hey, look, I got this. I just want to give it to you. I want to submit it to you. Don't tell them what you got. Just submit it to them, please. Let's like, we, don't, we have enough prophets running around telling people stuff. Let's just get to prophets that want to submit things in humility, okay? So, my point is, is that they read this in the Bible because a man was willing to give up his life to translate it into their language. Hundreds of years later, they start to walk in the things they're reading about. Here's the thing. The first Reformation, go to the next slide, is the Reformation that represents intimacy. It manifests in intimacy. I can know God. He can know me. We can have a relationship. It's beautiful. You guys get to read the Word. You get to access God. Most of us don't take advantage of it until we're in a church service, but we should take advantage of it more. Because Jesus died on the cross to remove the middleman so that you could have direct access to the Father. You want to know why Jesus died? He didn't die so that your sin could be forgiven. He died so that you could have access to the Father. But in order to have access to the Father, guess what you needed? Your sins to be forgiven. We make it about the byproduct instead of about what it was for. We keep telling people, Jesus died for your sin. No, he didn't die for your sin. He died so that you could have access to God again. He wants you to have access to the Father. Oh, by the way, your sin gets forgiven in the midst of that because he was so desperate for you to be with God, he wipes out everything you've ever done. That's great news. But we're like, see you next Sunday. We have intimacy now, real connection, depth. The second one manifests, go to the next slide, is identity. See, we need intimacy and identity. I don't just need intimacy with God. I need to know who I am in God. The problem is people like to settle in one of those two camps. That's the issue. We're at an impasse in the church. We've either got a bunch of people who just want to sit and soak before the Lord or a bunch of people who just want to run to the streets. <laughs> go ahead and go to the next slide. See, if you have intimacy... Without identity, guess what you end up with? Next slide. Intimacy without identity will always lead you to religion. Because you'll begin to do it out of obedience and you'll begin. No, I'm sorry, that's the wrong word. I apologize, it's not the right word. Obedience is good. We all know that. You hear that. What I was trying to say was, is we begin to do things out of discipline, but discipline is the lowest form of discipleship. I don't do things because of discipline. Do things because I'm in love, because I found something that I'm willing to give up everything for. Yes, there is moments of discipline, amen? But if your entire relationship with God is based on discipline, you have missed out on so much in your journey. But if, but don't leave, hold on. Next slide. You can't have identity without intimacy. Because if you have identity without, without intimacy, you get entitlement. You have a bunch of people running around praying for the sick, but their lives still look like crap. Well, but I was praying and that guy got healed. I gave a prophetic word. I got a word of knowledge. These people got healed. These people got delivered. And I prayed, and I prayed for these people, and they all accepted the Lord. Well, then why are you still a jerk? <laughs> like, why are you still mean? Why are you still gossiping? Why are you still, you know what I'm saying? 
It's because we have all these people running around who were told they were awesome, but they also weren't told that they're awesome because God is awesome. They're not connected to the reason that they are awesome. Yes, you are amazing, but he is even more amazing. And the reason that you are amazing is because he's amazing. So it's not just about you running to the streets and doing all this stuff. It's about you being connected to the one who works through you and in you. And we need both. And I'm watching too many kids walk out of ministry school in depression. Because they don't know who they are outside of going to school. Because we taught them how to do all this stuff. But they still don't know how to live a normal life and balance a checkbook and get a job. I mean, I've met so many kids, they want me to, like, give money to them. What are you doing? Spending your day praying and going to church. And I'm like, so you're being a Christian. How about you get a job and still be a Christian? <laughs> no, brother. No, no, no. No, I'm a, I'm a missionary. No, no, no. That's called Christianity. Praying, seeking the Lord, and sharing the love of God. That's called Christianity, not missions. I know that's not the friendliest thing in the world to say, but I shouldn't fund you being a normal Christian. Tell me later. Okay. <laughs> now I understand. Look, if you're called to the nations, go. If you're called, I mean, there is a difference. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is a real thing called missions. There's a real thing called evangelism. There's a, there, these are real things. Short term and long term. I get all of that. But what I'm saying is we are now trying to fund normal Christianity and calling it missions and calling it ministry. It's not. It's entitlement. You don't deserve anything. You deserve nothing. I mean, you guys have heard me say, you've probably heard Todd say it before. If you want what you deserve, go to hell. Is that not what, are you telling me that's not what I deserve? No, be real honest. Do you know that's what you deserve? Because if you don't know that's what you deserve, then you actually don't know that you're saved yet. Because you got saved from something. You got saved. myself and hell. No wonder our worship is so distorted. It's because we forgot we got saved. It's the reason we don't even know how to evangelize. We're like all weird. We're like, oh, I don't know. And then we like buy into like somebody else's model because it makes us feel good. And then that way if it doesn't work, we can blame somebody else's model instead of just trying to be a normal human being. God does not ask you to make converts. He asks you to make disciples. Nowhere in the Bible does God ask you to make converts. He said, make disciples. The problem is, a convert only has to say one, yes one time. A disciple has to say yes 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And guess who's responsible for it? The person who enables we don't want that responsibility, so we just go, I went to the mall and got 10 people saved. I would rather you find one person and give your life to them for 10 years. Because that's what the Bible teaches us to do. Sure, we should talk to people about Jesus. But don't be a weirdo. Please stop being a weirdo. Just be a normal person who likes people. You know? I hope you're hearing that. Just be a normal person who likes people. It'll always come up if you like people because they'll wonder why you like them so much. <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting at a coffee shop today and having a cup of coffee. They're like, man, you're really nice. What do you do for a living? I'm like, oh, that's an interesting question. I just go around the world and sing about Jesus and tell people about Jesus. It's really awesome. And they're like, cool. <laughs> and I was like, don't worry. I'm not a weirdo. 
And they were like, well, that's good to know, actually. Thank you so much. <laughs> and then I bought their coffee, and they were totally stoked, and they were awesome. You guys, we don't have to walk people to a decision. Holy Spirit does that. I'm not, I'm not, you guys, we are so worried in Christianity that everything has to end in a period when most of what Jesus said ends in a question mark. If we don't put a period about that, if we don't get a period at the end of it, we're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what did you tell him about Jesus? Did you tell him about Jesus? Oh, okay, he said, he said Jesus, thank you. Thank God he said that. Because I was questioning his salvation there for a minute. He said Jesus, okay, we're good. And Jesus is like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Peace. <laughs> he's like the woman like that's about to get stoned in adultery he's like go and sin no more and we're like what but yeah but what do i do just don't do it again Praise God. you know what i mean she doesn't go he doesn't like go okay now i need you to repeat after me you, you listening look at me in the eyes i want to know you're paying attention no wait bow your head and close your eyes that's better yeah bow your head and close your eyes repeat after me okay this is Jesus. He's literally like, just don't do it anymore. All right, peace out. <laughs> and we're like, poor Jesus. He didn't know how to do evangelism. <laughs> I mean, that rich young ruler walked right up to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to go to heaven? And Jesus is like, give up everything and come follow me. And the guy's like, that's too much. And Jesus again goes, peace out. And leaves him. <laughs> I mean, if somebody runs up to you, literally, think about this. Somebody runs up to you, I want to know Jesus. You're like, of course you ran up to me. <laughs> I am glowing with the glory of the Lord. Thank you so much for coming to me. <laughs> and you stand there and you go, bow your head and close your eyes. Repeat after me. Thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, we, want, we know what to do. We've been trained. <laughs> and Jesus is like, Oh, you don't want to give up everything yet? That's cool. Maybe later. And just bails. He ends it all with a question. And we're training people to give a period. And Jesus loves question marks. He loves question marks. It's okay. You don't know what to do? Awesome. It's okay. Try something. Try what? I don't know. What do you like doing? Try that. He made you. Put it in you. I mean, most of us spend all this time arguing with God. Hey, God, what do you what do you want me to do? He's like, I don't know what you want to do. And we're like, No, no, no. What do you want to do? He's like, No. What do you want to do? And then we're like, No, no, no. God, what do you want to do? <laughs> and he's like, No. What do you want to do? <laughs> and we're like, I don't know, Pastor. I need to be with you. <laughs> Why don't we just try stuff? It's okay. If you fall over and bump yourself, then you just get back up. Move on. We're so stressed out in the church that we can't even live a normal life. I don't know what to do. I'm a young person. I just want to follow the call of God all the days of my life. Where do I start? I don't know. Work at Starbucks. Learn how to balance a checkbook and put money in savings. Start there. You know what I mean? And we're like, I don't know what to do. Just do something. It's okay. We don't just need intimacy with Jesus. We need identity. You guys, you're okay. Can I just tell you that today, church? You're okay. You're not a jacked up mess. You're all right. I know we want to convince people they're totally messed up. I know you're broken. You got stuff that's messed up. It's cool. We all do. There's not one person in this room. You can look around. Not one of them is perfect. Not one of them in this room. You can look around and go, I'm in good company. It's why I like to lead worship the way I do. I like to lead it like a hot mess and never even know where I'm going. I like to do that because I feel like if we keep putting perfection on the stage, everyone else has to think they have to be perfect too. I say, like, why just, why don't we just make a noise? We'll be just a hot mess together. You know what I mean? Like, let's just be a mess together. Hit the wrong notes, hit the wrong key. It's fine. You probably did it 12 times today. You just didn't have to do it in front of everybody. So if I just do that and miss the stuff, then we can all just together feel okay. You know? 
there's a reformation coming too. See, most people are like, I wish I was there with Luther. I, I wish I could see the miracles. I wish I could see Moses. I wish I could see this. I wish I could see that. I wish I would have been there in Azusa Street. I would love to see the power of the Holy Ghost. I would have loved to see an outpouring like that. I would have loved to have been there. You have an opportunity to be there. You were born in a generation where you can be there. But we're missing it because we don't know how to define that. Go ahead and go to the next slide. If there's a reformation of intimacy, who is the word? Right? Jesus, right? Okay, that's right. You did it good. Now, okay, so if the word is Jesus, who's power? Holy Spirit. Next slide. Holy Spirit, good job. I feel a little bit like this is Jeopardy right now. Good job. You know, I'll take power for a hundred jet. Okay. If the, so here's the next one. If the word, if the first reformation represents Jesus, and the second reformation represents the Holy Spirit. What reformation is coming? Go ahead and go to the next slide. It's a reformation of love in the Father's heart. It's coming. And it's actually already began. We just haven't had our Wittenberg moment yet. And we haven't had our Azusa Street moment yet. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Because that's we haven't had our moment yet. But it actually is happening. If that's the case, so now, if the word is intimacy, if power is identity, it's okay, you are, that was awesome, I like that, it was there, it's gone, it's okay. They got nervous, I'm sorry, I made you nervous, I apologize. Now she's like, I don't know what to do, I don't know. You're doing a great job. <laughs> if power is identity, then the last manifestation is There is a reformation of love coming, and it manifests in family. And I want to break it down for you. Can you give me just like a few more minutes to do this, please? So here's how it works. I know this is true, and I'll tell you why. Number one, we are told at the very end of Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, before God goes silent and we get introduced to Jesus, right? The very last book. Do you know what the very last verse is? The very last verse says, the great and terrible day of the Lord is coming, and it will recognize it because the what? The hearts of the fathers will turn to the, and the hearts of the children will turn to the, a manifestation of the new day is literally fathers becoming fully who they are, and the father's heart being poured out on many. But here's the problem. We love to have father's heart conferences, but we don't like to go home and actually be a dad. Because being a father is not an anointing, it's a decision. Nobody likes to hear that because we all feel guilty when we start talking about family, when we start talking about fatherhood, when we start talking about motherhood. We have a deep guilt feeling about it because the church rails against abortion, rails against homosexuality, rails against all these things, but never addresses divorce and marriage. Wait, wait, just even just put, let me take it a step further. Jesus never addresses adult, never addresses homosexuality, never addresses abortion. But he continually addresses marriage, divorce, and those things. I think we have so much guilt in this area that we don't want to be brought up because it's too painful. Because just by the numbers, every life in by somebody in divorce, going through a divorce, going through these things. Everybody in here has been touched. But some generation has to decide enough is enough. I know there's churches praying for cancer-free zones, Bethel praying for cancer-free zones. I am praying for divorce-free cities. If all the church needed, if all the world needed was miracles, they would be running into those churches all the time. But they don't need miracles for anything. Because everyone out there, they're all looking for it. So, let's go Malachi 4. Now let's walk backwards and go to Malachi 2. You know what Malachi 2 says? Malachi 2 says this. It's actually, in case you don't know, order. Malachi 2 comes before Malachi 4. 
Okay? So before we have the hearts of the fathers turning to the children and the hearts of the children turning to the fathers, we have a whole other chapter up here. And it begins with this phrase. It says this. You flood my altar with tears and I do not answer you. Anybody been there? <laughs> You're like, I, I think I wrote that verse. <laughs> you flood the altar with tears and I do not answer you. And you ask me, why? Are you ready for God's answer? Malachi 2, he says, because you lost faith and were not mine. The literal translation says that you, you became faithless to the wife of your youth. What the, the actual word there, faithless, is not adultery. It's not anything to do with sex outside of marriage. There's no sexual promiscuity in that word. The word is literally faithless, loss of faith. You actually lost faith that your marriage could get any better than it was today. And because you lost faith in the very thing that points to how much I love my church, you can never believe how much I love my children. Now, some of you are going, now, before I go any further, some of you are going, um, first of all, you suck. Second of all, I'm not quite sure that's true. And I'm totally okay with that. Totally cool with that. That's fine. I'm not asking you to fix your entire life tonight. And the fact that some of you have been through divorce is not an indictment against you. It's an invitation to you. Because nobody told us this stuff. In fact, most people were not told that sex is marriage. They were taught that sex is a part of marriage and not to have it. Except for the Bible says, God says, have sex. Lots of it. That's what the Bible says. The, you know that the very first command in the entire Bible was have sex? Oh, you didn't know that? I got pictures. Next slide. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just, kidding. I'm just messing with your head. You're like, oh, my God, he is crazy. You know, He's lost his mind. Look, let me break this down for you without being really graphic. If your kids don't know about sex, let me teach them real quick just so we can all get on the same page. I taught my kids about sex when they were three, four years old. Why? Because the first time they ask where babies are, I should have an answer for them. I'm the parent. When they ask where babies come from, I should be like, I, uh, in China. Oh, God. Uh, oh. Ask your mother. I mean, all they did was they went like this. Um... Uh, why do I have this? Why does sister not have one? <laughs> I went into the other room. It's very, very simple. Church, this is so simple. You guys, God did not make sex awkward. We did. We let the devil distort it, and we believed it. So we don't talk about it. In Jewish tradition, kids were taught about sex from a very young age because it was a part of the covenantal nature of God. I went and got two puzzle pieces. You want to know how I told my children? It's very simple. I went and got two puzzle pieces. And I said, you were born with this. Sister was born with this. Because God designed men and women to come together in the context of marriage. Because you have a picture and she they will have a picture. And when you put them together, they make a new picture, and that picture is called marriage. And while they are separate, they cannot make a complete picture. You want to know what the next thing they asked me was? What's for dinner? <laughs> because honestly, we should make this stuff normal. We've made sex a part of marriage instead of recognizing it is marriage. Okay, it's going to get real. Okay. But I need you to go with me for a second, please. How do you make covenant? How do you make covenant? Anybody know? Say it. How do you make covenant? Blood. You make covenant by blood. God makes covenant throughout the Old Testament, and he makes covenant with individuals, and he makes covenant with nations by the spilling of blood. Amen? That's what happens. And 
fact, we get a new covenant in the blood of Christ Jesus. Is that not correct? That's how we enter into covenant is by the blood of Jesus, correct? So now I ask you, in that context, did Jesus come down and ask you to sign a piece of paper and call it a covenant? Did he? What is that called? That's called a contract. We don't serve a contractual God. We serve a covenantial God. And if that's the case, when you go to get married, and you, when do you actually get married? Do you get married when you sign the paper, or do you sign get married when you have sex? When does the blood happen? Can you imagine how different our youth would look at sex if we told them the very first person you have sex with, you're actually married to them in the eyes of God? Because sex is marriage, not a part of it. But we don't teach people that. We teach them it's a part of marriage. Don't have it. We don't serve a contractual God. We serve a covenantial God. You want to know what a contract looks like? Contract looks like this. Mike, I would take a bullet for you. I would take a bullet for you. We like that. We like that. I'll take a bullet for you. No. You're the man. I'll take a bullet for you. And we're like, yeah, Seth, I'll take a bullet for you. And then he goes ahead and messes it up. And he just, he like gossips about me or he does something wrong. I'd be like, oh, I'll take a bullet for you. You're crazy. That's called a contract. You want to know what a covenant looks like? A covenant is, Mike, not only would I take a bullet for you, I would take a bullet from you. And I would still choose you. But you have to decide whether or not you have a contract or you have a covenant. Because if you're only in this as long as you win, you don't have a covenant, you have a contract. Because a covenant is forever. Win, lose, hell or high water. I'm in. Could you imagine the kind of relationships we could have if we simply knew the other person wasn't going anywhere? Could you imagine the kind of churches we could have that just weren't going to get in our way and make us lose it all? And all this is wrapped up all the way down. This is all wrapped up in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about marriage, and the first thing he says is, wives, you better submit. <laughs> That's my favorite verse in the Bible. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Somewhere Nikki is kicking me. Somewhere not pleasant. Okay. Look. Submit, submission is actually two words. The role there is totally jacked up. We have taught women that they have their place, that they actually need to be behind, that they actually need to be in line with what the husband says. That's not what at all what God is saying here. Not at all, not even the slightest. Submission is two words, submit and mission. The goal of God in this context is that women, you would know your mission so that you have the ability to find somebody that you can submit it to who will make sure for the rest of your life it happens. But because most women don't know, because we have a fatherless generation, because we don't have dads raising up daughters, we have a bunch of young women who don't know who they are, so they're actually looking for a father instead of looking for a husband. And they find fathers instead of husbands, and that man doesn't know how to be a father because he's never been one, and he sure as heck doesn't know how to be a husband because he probably didn't have a dad either. If you know who you are, you can find somebody. Ladies, if you know who you are, you can find someone to take who you are and submit it to someone who will spend the rest of their lives making sure you don't forget it. Even if you're changing a hundred diapers a day. <laughs> or you're out in the workforce. I don't care what you do. You guys, this is the model of heaven. Who's the, who's the best husband in all of human history? Who's the best husband in all eternity? Who? Who is it? Jesus, which is awesome because he never got married. So, okay, that's great. But he really is the greatest husband. He's our model, correct? He's our model for a husband. That's why it says next, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved who? The church and gave himself up for her. Here's Jesus' model. Are you guys ready for Jesus' model? Jesus' model is he was on a throne in his position. Now he's about to be the best husband. Die for the sake of love so that she 
to come into her fullness. Because the husband knows that when she comes into her fullness, he gets everything he ever wanted. Jesus' model to his bride is not sit down and shut up and follow me. It is participate with me, come into your fullness, because I know when you're as awesome as I made you to be, everybody on planet Earth knows. That's why, husbands, shut up. It's hard, duh, but somebody has got to be a pillar. I'm sick and tired of manhood being defined by whether or not you like to go camping or whether you like to go play football. I, I barely know the rules for football, okay? Like, I hate running more than five feet to the refrigerator, okay? Like, that's like too far, okay? Like, I only do sit-ups when I'm like on the ground playing with my kids and then I gotta actually sit up and get up, you know? And then at the, on the other end, people are like, well, you know, well, yeah, I'm manly. I go camping. Look, pretending to be homeless is not manly, okay? <laughs> Nobody likes to pretend to be homeless, okay? I don't mind going to the woods as long as at the end of the day, we end up at the spa. I'm cool with that. You know what I'm saying? Why would I build a campfire when I can just turn on a fire? Basically, what I'm telling you is you don't define manhood by personality. It never worked. So we need a clear definition of manhood. What's the definition of manhood? Here it is from the Bible. Be unmovable and unshakable in any circumstance so the world has someone to look to and cling to when they don't know what else to do. If your family has that, I promise you, if your family has that, it'll never fall apart. Do you know that there was a secular survey taken? And you know what the secular survey said? 90% of marriages that are in trouble, if the husband just decides never to leave and to continue pursuing, it will reconcile. That's a secular, this is not Christian. This is a completely secular survey of divorced people. People whose marriages were in trauma and they were going to get divorced. They said 90% of those marriages survived simply because the husband said, I'm not giving up. Because someone has to make that decision. And men, the Bible says, it's me. And you're like, that's dumb. <laughs> I'm okay with it being dumb. Be mad at it. I'm cool with that. But just don't say it's not true. if you're only loving to get love in return, that's not really love. We have an opportunity. Then Ephesians says this. I love this. Paul then says these words. He says, and isn't this a mystery? <laughs> Paul, he just like described most of the like doctrines that we have in the church. But the thing that's a mystery to, to Paul is people getting married. That's a mystery to him. Why it exists. Why? said because it's the one way God chose to show the rest of the world to show the rest of the world that he actually is who he said he is because when you choose covenant even when it doesn't work he says that's what I do for you and then the whole world knows too you guys can I give you one more thing I can end abortion end AIDS end STDs empty the foster care system and empty every orphanage and all I need to do are three things and I don't need a president and I don't need the government. Would you like to know what those three steps are? Don't have sex till you're married. When you get married, stay married to one person and then teach your children to do the same. You just ended abortion because no one wanted children. You just ended AIDS because 97, 98% of it is sexually transmitted. Very little is transmitted through blood. You end every STD because nobody's having sex outside of marriage. You empty the foster care system and you empty the orphanage in one generation because there's no children outside of wedlock. The problem is you're like, no, the world's never going to buy into that. Well, good. Why don't you first? <laughs> Somebody has to set a standard. Instead, we're yelling at people about their own sexuality when we have no... You guys, you want to you wanna say something about homosexual marriage? Then go home and save your own marriage. A bunch of people running around want to say a whole lot of stuff about homosexuality.
homosexuals get homo, like homosexuals get married, like homosexual marriage, gay marriage. What do we do about it? What do we do about it? What do we do about it? I don't know. Go home and fix your marriage. Go home and love your husband. Go home and love your wife. Stop figuring out how to tell somebody else what to do and give them something to look forward to. I'm so tired of people yelling at other people over stuff they have no control over, but they have full control over themselves and do nothing about it. I know it's not a really great preaching point. It doesn't get me invited back everywhere. I'm totally okay with that. I don't care anymore. I don't need invites. I need people to be transformed. Because honestly, in a room like this, if one or two people get this, we can change the planet. Jesus changed the planet with 12 people who didn't need armies. We're waiting for armies and stadiums, and God's like, why don't you get 12? And we're like, no, brother. I need stadiums. I love stadiums. I play in them. I think that's great. But how many people in those stadiums actually have a healthy family and a healthy marriage that they're going to go home to? Look, I know it's getting late. Let me walk through this last part. It's going to take a couple minutes or two. Right, there's two people in the Bible who walk this out. We, uh, one person that walks it out. Go ahead and go to the next slide. There's John and there's Peter, right? And they both had intimacy, correct? They both had the same access to Jesus, correct? Go to the next slide. They both, there's three ways that you could have identity. And they both had the opportunity to walk out their identity. The first, independence. If in your heart you believe you need nobody to do this, you are actually walking in rebellion because everybody needs something. Somebody. We all need to walk this out together. You were created for community, and you were created for friendship. Not this false friendship where we all get in the same room, sing the same songs, and call it community. That's not community. What community is is the people that I would ride or die for even when it doesn't work out and it doesn't look like it's fun anymore. Relationships are meant to be inconvenient. That's why they're relationships. If it's awkward, you're probably doing it right. Okay, so let's just cross off independence. Go to the next slide. Let's just then we there's codependence. Codependence says I'm not okay unless you're okay, which means basically like it goes a little bit something like this. Like hey, you want to go to the movies? Yeah, I mean you go. Oh, I want to go to the movies too. You want to go to the movies? You're tired? Yeah, I'm tired too. I don't want. I don't really want to go anywhere. I'm tired. You're hungry? Me? I'm hungry. I'm hungry too. I'm really hungry too. Oh, you don't want to? Yeah, you're not hungry. I'm not hungry either. I don't want to. I'm not hungry. I don't want to do anything. Oh, you want to go ride bikes? I want to ride bikes too. I think bikes are awesome. You don't even have a bike? I didn't. I don't have a bike either. I don't like bikes. I think bikes are stupid. We literally walk through life. Codependency is when I walk through life and I can never be okay because the people I'm around are not okay. So I have to spend my life selfishly making other people okay so that I can convince myself through their okayness that I'm okay too. It's why, it's why in relationships we like to give gifts instead of connecting hearts. Like you mess up with your wife and you're like, I brought you flowers. Just make it okay. No? I brought jewelry too, just in case. <laughs> oh, you don't think that you, you don't think that actually happens? We do it in the church all the time. It's called healings, signs, wonders, miracles without any connection to his home. God, I did all the gifts, and he's like, I don't even know you. <laughs> you wonder what God calls evil in the Bible? He says, Many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do all the stuff? Reach far from you all the things. And he says, away from me, you evildoers. I don't even know you. I do not know you. God calls doing things for God without relationship with God. He calls them evil. So we can't do codependence, but we can do interdependence. And interdependence is the most like a thing. And here's what I'd like to say about codependence. And you can, like, fry my theology later. I think Peter was codependent. How do I know that? Because when Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, what does Peter say? No, no, that will never happen. I'll defend you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Why? Because if Jesus dies, he doesn't know who he is. In fact, he believes it so much that when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and they come to take him, what does Peter do? He lops off a dude's ear. Because he can't let Jesus be taken. But we know he didn't have true depth of intimacy or interdependence because the moment he could back it up, he denies him and runs away. And here's why I know he had codependence. Here's my last thought on this. I think Jesus healed his codependency on the shores after his resurrection when he asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter goes, you're a really good guy. And he goes, no, do you? No, you said you loved me. Do you love me? 
you're great. You've been in those situations where you're like, someone's like, I love you so much. And you're like, you're awesome. You know, like, thank you for being, thank you. And Jesus, and the last time he asked him, he goes, are we friends? John, he was in the tomb. When he was at the Last Supper, where's John? He's laying on Jesus. He's like, oh, man, I'm getting in on this. You know what I'm saying? Like, this dude's awesome, you know? And he's, the best way I can describe interdependence is it's like a dance. Jesus leads, and you follow. But the way to follow is to lean into him. So you lean into him, and you lean into him. If you're doing marriage well, it's because you're leaning. Every season, you're leaning in to one another. That's interdependence. That's a healthy relationship is interdependence. And here's how I know John did it well. Because at the very end, last slide, the very end of Jesus' life, who is the last one to make it all the way to the cross? Jesus. It's John. And when John is there at the foot of the cross, Jesus gives something to John that he gives to no other human being in all of eternity. You know what he tells him? He says, son, this is your mom. Mom, this is your son. What does he say? He said, forget this spiritual children stuff. You went all the way with me, and you know what you get? You get to be a part of my actual family. Because out of 12 people who I poured my life into, and out of thousands that I preached to, only one dude can make it the whole way. And you guys think you have a failing ministry or your ministry isn't doing well because only a hundred showed up. Jesus, who does it perfectly and made no mistakes, he's not a terrible discipler of people. He's not a terrible lover. He's not a terrible friend. He did it all right and only one person showed up. He doesn't need masses. He needs one person to stay until the end. And the verse after that is, it says these words. And John took Mary for the rest of her life into his, last slide, into his. Everybody out there doesn't need your church. They need your home. Because them coming to this meeting but not able to come to your dinner table doesn't mean shit. Because everybody out there that doesn't want to come to this meeting would love to come to your house for dinner. Stop inviting them to the church and making them, stop making leadership responsible for your evangelistic tactics. The reason we invite them here and not into our own home is because we don't want to be responsible for how it plays out. People out there don't trust these meetings. They don't need these meetings. They need you. They need your family. They need your dinner table. They need to sit across the table from you when you're not trying to make them a notch on your belt and tell them you actually like them. You want to know how to talk? You want to know how to figure out what's going on with homeless, with, with a gay person? Invite them to your house for dinner. You want to know what to do with racism? Sit across the table with somebody who's a different race than you and say, I don't get it. I don't understand. How can I be a part? How can I help? But most of us are like, no, I'd rather preach on it. Somebody else preach on that. Give me a sermon. Is there something on YouTube? I'd like to look on YouTube. No, talk to an actual human being. Jesus hung out with actual human beings because he was an actual human being and he was normal. 30 years of his life we don't even hear about because it would have been super boring. Jesus got up today. He had coffee, possibly. <laughs> then he put on his carpenter garb, walked down the dirt road in his sandals. He made stuff. He broke precisely 30 minutes for lunch. Then went back to work to make more stuff. He then walked home down the same dirt road, picked up some vegetables for Mary, his mother. They made dinner. He went to bed, got up, and did it again. For 30 years. We live, we celebrate the four years of the miraculous and write off the 30 years he spent preparing those four meals. 
those 30 years of my life, they were all one day and one night. I just want to honor people all day long and give them a pause that they can actually listen. This is what I want to pray for. I'm going to pray while I'm in school. sure it's going to last. And look, I'm not talking about the fact that you guys haven't covered up very well and you like play nice. I'm talking about real intimacy, real depth, real covering, real connection. And if you don't have that tonight and you want it in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand up and all I want to do is pray for you. And look, if you're like here with your spouse and you're like, well, this is really awkward and I don't think they know, this is the perfect time to stand up and tell them. I had one dude, I had, I, this literally, I, I can say that because a dude literally did that. He like walked up and he was like, hey man, Jake, uh, this is my wife. I wasn't even going to come tonight. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you, I wasn't going to come. My wife said I should come, so I came. And then, you know, like you did the all, you like, so they stand up and, and the next thing I know, my wife's standing up. I didn't even know anything was going on. <laughs> so uh, I don't know whether to thank you or punch you, but I'm, I'm uh, really glad I was here tonight. Look, stop stressing yourself out over how to fix your marriage and just say, hey, I don't know what that heck I'm doing. You think anybody's got a market on marriage? We don't know what the heck we're doing. How the heck do you make two people work? I don't know. We start with humility and say, hey, I, I just, I would really like to love you better than what I do today. So if we can start tonight, that would be really awesome. So if that's you, I feel courage over you guys right now. I just want you to stand up right where you are. Just stand up where you are. I'm not going to make you come to the front. If your marriage, if you are, your marriage or your family's marriage or your parents' marriage, you guys have a bunch of kids here, and you want to get prayed for tonight, I just want you to stand up where you are. If nobody wants to stand up and all we have are perfect marriages, I'm cool with that. So, awesome. Awesome, 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 awesome. I don't think you need crazy prayers to do stuff like this. Once we stand up, like God already does the work, it, it takes so much courage just to stand where you are. Like really, you standing is the prayer. It's not the fancy word that gets said after you stand up. It's the act of standing up and saying, I'm, I'm going to get prayed for. Look, um, I'm not going to try to play games. My goal is to only get hurt once. my heart that people have to go through this stuff. But I can't play games. I want to see it now. And I'm not saying you're a bad person because you had me. Please, for the love of God, if you're hearing that, that is 100% the devil because I am not that person. I think you're amazing. I think your broken heart needs to get mended. And if you're in a second marriage, then just go to God and ask him, how do we do this together? Nobody, I, I don't know if anybody's ever st stood and told of you, in front of you and told you that it's just not okay. I'm sorry, it's not. This is not okay. And we can't make it, you're going to make me feel good anymore, Josh. I'm so sorry, you guys, please stand again. I know what it feels like. My marriage went through hell several times. Trust me, I'm a total idiot. <laughs> I don't do this well. I don't know what I'm doing. My own marriage goes through its own cycles. I mean, just la just the end of last year, we spent three months pretty much not talking because my wife was like, I really would like it if you would leave. <laughs> because we just had problems trying to figure out how to relate, how to connect. It's hard. But I would just say, and she's like, I would leave you, but if I did, you'd probably chase me. <laughs> and I said, I have done my job well. <laughs> you guys, 
Bible says over and over, bear fruit. Amen? But is there any tree that bears fruit all year round? Not without growth modification hormone or something, you know what I mean? Like, really, fruit is supposed to be seasoned. There's seasons of dryness, and there's seasons of drought, and there's seasons of plenty, and we're supposed to find joy in that. I don't want us to be perfect Christians. I just want us them and you can heal their hearts because I've seen it happen over and over church the good news of the gospel is not just that he loves you it's that he can change you that's the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ he doesn't just love you he can change you and he can transform you he actually makes you the righteousness of Christ and so God I ask that your righteousness is a big church word for making things right (laughs) That you would make things right in every marriage that's represented here. That you would actually do that. I'm asking you as a son to my heavenly father, please come and get involved. Come and tenderize hearts that are heartache. Come and bring communication where there's been silence. Come and bring open ears and open minds where there's been closed off because of pain. And I pray some of you are actually here and your marriage is already broken apart and you have no hope. And I just declare right now, resurrection power, come on your marriage. I don't care if you've been separated three months, three weeks, or three years. I believe in Jesus' name that resurrection can hit your home and God can resurrect even the most dead of marriages. I have, the, You guys, we have the testimony. Jason is sitting right here in the front row. You guys were divorced for how long? Nine months. They're getting remarried this Sunday. Like literally divorced, not just separated. I'm talking literal papers filed. They actually had to go get a marriage license again. We know another couple, they were separated apart for three years. And the wife comes back. The husband restores. You guys, when God speaks to Jeremiah, he says, I'm divorcing Israel. He uses the word divorce. And some people use that as permission to get a divorce. That's not what happens in the book of Jeremiah. He says, I'm going to divorce you. Oh, P.S. In Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, I have plans for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Why? Because even in the midst of separation, brokenness, and, and divorce, God always plans to bring it back together, resurrect it, restore it, redeem it, and show the world how good his love is. And I'm believing that for every one of you standing. And for those of you that didn't even have the courage to stand because you don't I have one guy stand up in a meeting with me. What if you actually want the marriage to fail? <laughs> and I was like, God can use that. <laughs> so I pray that for you, that hope would be restored. And can I just say this, the bottom line, don't give up. I'll leave you with Galatians 6. You will reap a harvest in due season. Say if you don't give up, you will have a harvest. Please stand up with the team this morning. Amen. This is a good message. Is it worth staying a little late?
to start right here. It's going to start with us. Let's just pray. We're going we're gonna to close this out. We're going to get you guys home. But I just want you to just to just something as we walk out of here. And let's take this stuff and let's begin to live our lives. Father, we just come a new focus for marriage. Lord, that, that just as you have divorced, that you just, that is so your heart out there, that once we become like Christ to us, God, I pray that this would become our home. Lord, I ask that you would do a work in us. Lord, that we would begin to live this out in our lives. That people isn't arrogant, that has just heard this message, that this would just dive deep into their hearts. Lord, I thank you that they're going to carry this, and this is going to go from generations to generations. Oh, well, Lord, we thank you that it is because of the dependence upon you. Lord, it's through humility. Lord, it's through an intimacy. Lord, it's through identity. Lord, it's through just Sweat. 